Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Open Door Philosophy, a podcast where an undergraduate philosophy major and his former high school philosophy teacher discuss a variety of philosophical topics in an understandable way, all towards the purpose of living a good life. Wondering what the heck a wordle is? I'm Derek Parsons. And wondering when it will get warmer, I'm your host, Andrew Graziano. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 2, where we continue our series on the mind-body problem. In this episode, we'll explore the materialist and panpsychist view. But before then, of course, it is the catch-up. Andrew, what's going on? Life is pretty good. Um, It's very cold in Houston as our bi-weekly weather update will come to, but it's very cold. Just got very cold last night. So I I have a little bit of a cold, but it's been pretty good. I went last last Wednesday or so. The philosophy club at Rice asked me to give a short little presentation on uh, open door philosophy. So I I talked to them for a few minutes about uh, our podcast, and I had a really great time. And so I just want to say to them thank you for having me. It was a it was a blast. Oh, that's cool. When was that? I think it was this Wednesday. It was a few days ago, two two days ago. Okay. Well, great. That's cool. Yeah. And so for me, definitely it's cold. We are, uh, so we have, I think it's four or five nights in a row where the low is below freezing. Nothing compared to last year with the uh, horrible snowpocalypse as it was <laughs> called, but it's pretty cold for us. And, and both Andrew and I have the day off of school today. Andrew's campus closed and my campus closed yesterday. Uh, because there was sleet and all that good stuff. And, you know, us Houstonians, we don't even know what nope. to do about that. Not at all. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. What else is going on in my life? I'm going to teach a new unit on uh, beauty and aesthetics. I've never done that topic before. So I've kind of been putting that together. But, you know, it's February. <laughs> there always seems to be a, a lull in February. It's like the excitement of Christmas is worn off. Spring break is too far away to get excited about. And it's still dark at like 7 a.m. <laughs> and it's dreary outside. And, you know, there's just this kind of lull. Uh, and I think a lot of us are probably feeling it. I know most students yeah. are. Definitely, definitely feeling it. But uh, looking to brighter March. Hopefully no snowpocalypse is, uh, is last year. Hopefully if, if the weather follows its normal pattern, whatever that <laughs> is these days. You know, this should be our last cold snap. The frost date in Houston is usually about February 15th. Okay, well, that's more than probably everyone (laughs) wants to know about (laughs) about weather here in Houston. But hey, if you want any gardening tips, just (laughs) let me know. All right, so this is our second episode in our arc on the mind-body problem. In last week's episode, we mainly just went over the mind-body problem as a whole, gave a little brief overview of all of the different topics that are related uh, to the problem that we're going to be talking about, and we mostly focused on dualism. So just a quick recap of our overview. There's three main schools of thought in the mind-body problem. There's dualism, there's materialism, and panpsychism. So Last week, we talked about dualism, we talked about arguments for and against it, and this week, we will be talking about materialism and panpsychism. Yeah, so materialism is the idea that the mind is not separate from the body. The mind is the body. The mind is the brain. It's something that the brain produces and produces it through a materialistic way, and it's a, a lot of it's based on the law of causation, 
We'll talk a bit more about that. But, but essentially, a consciousness is an event caused by the brain, and there's nothing really special about it. And then there's the panpsychist view, which tries to bridge the, uh, the gap between dualism and materialism. And, and that's the idea that everything has a degree of consciousness, uh, that existence is consciousness. We will get into that, certainly. And I would like to point out that the stuff that we're going over in these two episodes are very introductory, very surface. There's a lot of really in-depth arguments for uh, all of these positions. We're spending about 20, 25 minutes on each of them. So, you know, things like, you know, if you're familiar with consciousness and things like illusionism and, uh, you know, if you're like, where's illusionism when we're talking about materialism? Ah, you know, we're not going to get into all of those things. This is really just kind of an introductory. And maybe in future episodes, we might go more in depth on perhaps justifications uh, of why these schools of thought exist and other arguments. All right. So, so Andrew, what (laughs) is materialism? Let's start this discussion. I think the best way to think about materialism, and you kind of give a, gave a brief little introduction to it uh, just a minute ago, but I think materialism can be best thought about kind of like, well, I was going to say kind of like physicalism, but we didn't really, I don't think we've ever talked about that before. So no use of relating. Yeah. When I read literature on, uh, on consciousness, I hear physicalism and uh, materialism kind of used interchangeably. Mm, okay. Yeah, I think I think I've heard also materialism. I, I don't know if this is necessarily true, but I've heard some uh some people who are philosophers of the mind prefer physicalism over materialism and I've heard others use them uh, kind of synonymously. So, I don't know, but I'm just going to use materialism because that's the term that I think I'm familiar with. And I so I think that um I think materialism is basically just the idea that all that's existing, your consciousness, whatever, it's all physical phenomenon. So, you know, if we're relating it to the mind-body problem at hand, and we're reflecting back on dualism last week, where there's this kind of immaterial mind or immaterial soul, and then there's this physical body, and the two are kind of working together, a materialist would say, there's nothing separate about that at all. The mind, the consciousness, whatever, is just kind of this function of the brain maybe function of, no, I don't think they would say function of the soul, uh, but they would say it's kind of just some physical processes of the brain. And yeah, I think that's, I think that's a very, very basic introduction, but I think that's, uh, that's basically what I think about when I think of materialism. Yeah. From like a broader perspective outside of consciousness, uh, a materialist would really take a very scientific, objective, quantifiable view of existence, right? And so like, there's no place in a materialist uh, experience for like woo-woo stuff, uh, you know, like spirituality or the idea of, um, you know, a presence being underneath physical things and certainly nothing like the world of forms or anything that mm-hmm. uh, that Plato suggests. It's just that everything is biological and works according to laws of nature. And, and, and that's mm-hmm. that. They don't bother to answer why laws of nature exist, but we know that they do. And that explains how our universe works. And that's really all there is to it. So if you apply that to the idea of consciousness, the question is, where does consciousness come from or what is consciousness? With the dualist view, it's like it is perhaps something inside of us that is a spirit or, you know, our mind is something that is just separate from the brain. The brain is something that is physical. 
We know that the brain does all kinds of things for our body. It regulates our heartbeat. It tells us when we're in pain. It tells us when we're hungry. It, you know, it helps us regulate our sleep, all these types of things. And a materialist would say, the mind is nothing more than those things that I just described. It's another thing that the brain does. The mind is not something special. It's not something, it's not some immaterial substance. It is just, uh, it's just a physical result of cause and effect that's going on in the billions and trillions of neurons that are firing in your brain all the time. Yeah. And I think this is, this materialist approach is, well, I, I, I don't want to make a general broad claim about this, but it's a, I think it's a very scientific way of looking at consciousness in a some, somewhat scientific way of looking about consciousness. We'll talk about how it's not necessarily one in a little bit, but I think um, at least on the surface, it seems very scientific. And the fact that we're not counting consciousness as kind of this woo-wah kind of uh, mystery substance that's just kind of uh, floating around that we, we can never put our hands on. It's in the brain. It's something that probably a materialist would argue can somewhat be studied and that the changes to the brain would impact consciousness too. Yeah, pr probably be studied is is a good way to put it because you know the materialist view as far as philosophy goes is a relatively new <laughs> on the scope of like 2500 years of philosophy is a relatively new approach although uh, from what I read uh, the majority of philosophers would fall in the materialist camp in one way or another uh, many have abandoned the the dualist view although there are certainly still some philosophers who subscribe to the dualist view but yeah that it's possible that consciousness can be studied. In our previous episode, we talked about the difficulty of studying consciousness because it's so subjective and it's so particular to a, a person. And we discussed, you know, kind of the, the problem of other minds. Yet, with the advancement of science and especially like neuro, neuroscience and all the tools that we have to scan the brain these days with, and we understand how chemicals are released in the brain and all of this stuff, that, that there is some hope that, that science would be able to uncover the cause that creates the effect of mind, right? And it seems that neuroscience hasn't been able to accomplish that yet. And so materialists point towards the yet aspect because cause and effect or the law of causation is such a fundamental part of understanding our universe and how it works you know, logically, it just seems that the mind would be subject to those laws, to the law of causation, just like anything else would. Yeah, so it's the idea that there's this hope, there's this yet that uh, that still science will be able to uncover this with with new tools, as we have with so many other things in science throughout the centuries. Mm. I think that this kind of waiting for an explanation is not necessarily great. It's difficult in philosophy to justify an argument by claiming that proof of something will occur um, as a justification for belief. So I don't think that justifying an idea or defending an idea based on yet is a great justification for believing in the argument itself. It's bad philosophical logic to do so. It's it's not a great way to either justify your position, remain in the position. It's just kind of a nasty place to sit in the in the philosophy world. So I, I don't think it's a great 
place to be for the materialist. And I think that can throw in a little problem, but I also don't know if a materialist would would be uh, kind of bound by that because I think they would just say, you know, there's a lot of things that can't be explained or that can't be observed in the physical world too, and that we're kind of still waiting for an answer on. So just in the same way, we should we should be looking for this consciousness whenever we have the means to do so. Now, I don't know how people feel about that. Well, that's the real trick of it, right? Like, <laughs> like we just don't know, but yet we're so curious about it, right? We're so curious about consciousness, but but we don't we don't know, right? And so, because we have the questions and we want answers to those questions, we have to make theories based on possibilities sometimes, and we make leaps in judgment and justification in order to try to come up with theories that make sense, perhaps based on our practical experience, you know, like dualism, you know, there's that whole intuitive argument, like it makes sense. It seems that we are a mind inside of a body because, you know, say when someone dies, we're looking at their body in the casket, we say, oh, poor Charles, he's just not here anymore. This is his body. You know, he is gone. And, And so like, you know, from an intuitive point, you know, that seems like, yeah, dualism makes sense. But yet, that's just as unjustified as the materialist yeah. view that you just talked about right and so so that's that's the real trick like we want to know it's it's it is our experience right consciousness we're all having it right now and it seems like we should be able to have an answer for it and so we reach for those answers that seem most plausible even if we can't totally justify sure. i don't know if i explain my position well but i think that Oh, I think you did. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I think that, let me say, I'm trying to, again, I'm not trying to sound mean when I say this. I (laughs) I know. I mean, I think you're right. I mean, I think I'm right too. (laughs) But I think like, I'm trying to draw attention to a difference between the dualist and the materialist camp. The dualist is accepting of something that's immaterial. So they're epistemological justification. They're their way of understanding what the soul is is an accepted reliance on something that is impossible to observe. On the other hand, the materialist is arguing that there is some objectifiable and quantifiable way to measure what consciousness is, what the mind is, but they're not able to do that. So I think it kind of sets up a little bit of a contradiction, and it's just weird, and there's different ways of knowing uh, but they result in kind of the same, they result in something, a, a similar problem, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. We all just kind of shrug our shoulders and say, oh, it's yeah. a mystery. <laughs> and this is maybe where, like I said earlier, if we went into some other like sub theories of materialism, like illusionism or mysterianism uh, or something like that uh, might, might give listeners a more satisfactory, I guess, uh, understanding of the complexities of the argument. But I think ultimately that is where we end up with, right? It's like it's like, man, we just don't know, and uh, and that's where the panpsychists like to step in. They're like, haha, we have an answer for both you dualist and materialist who are conflicted. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that in a minute. I do want to talk about two thought experiments that are very famous. There's a number of thought experiments that do well with consciousness, but two I wanted to point out. Okay, so the idea is that consciousness cannot really be observed. Consciousness is a subjective 
uh, to the individual. We have the problem of other minds and almost a solipsistic experience as human beings. So Thomas Nagel in the 70s wrote, ooh, that might be 80s, I'll check, I'll check. like 83. Uh, anyway. <laughs> I haven't pulled up. Let's see. Uh, 74. Oh, 74. Okay. So Nagel wrote uh, a famous paper in 74 titled, What is it like to be a bat? <laughs> now, what on earth does this have to do with consciousness? And we're not talking about a baseball bat or anything else like that. We're talking about like like one of those things that have the big leathery wings and use echolocation for navigating the world and all that sort of stuff. He asks, what is it like to be a bat? This essay is just so funny. Um, and I think just speaks to Nagel. But um, basically his his point in his essay, what is it like to be a bat, is that we've studied bats. We can, we can uh, dissect them. We can know all about their physiological structure. We can know how their diets impact their flight patterns. We can know, we can know literally everything that's um, quantifiable about a bat. We can even... Yeah, like it's behaviors, it's biology, it's neurophysiology. Yeah, we can, we can yeah. know pretty much all of that, but we can never know what it's actually like to be a bat. So we can't know how a bat experiences the world Say that I'm looking at an apple right now, and I see the apple's red. It's, um, I don't know, it might have some water droplets on it. It's about the size of my palm. For a bat, that's going to be totally different. They're going to be interpreting that apple in a completely different way, and not just like, they're not going to be interpreting it in the way of, oh, yeah, an apple's not yummy to a bat. Maybe it is. I don't know. They're going to just be, not. well, maybe they might feel like that too. I don't know. But they're also just going to be seeing the world around them in a completely different way than a human would. And that's just something that's kind of fundamental differences. You know, it doesn't just have to be a bat. Um, it's something that's kind of fundamental, fundamental difference between humans and every other species that exists. But Mr. Parsons, what it, why is this a problem for a materialist? Right. So we know that a bat is having conscious experience, right? And, and we might, there's probably a lot of different ways we can define conscious experience, but it's that a thing is having some sort of sensory experience, right? Uh, hearing, tasting, smelling, seeing, that, that kind of stuff. And so we know that a bat is having conscious experience, just like so many other living things have conscious experience. But we can never really quite know what that conscious experience is like, which leads to the problem of consciousness itself and its difficulty in being able to study it. So Nagel chose a bat because he was trying to choose an animal that was as alien as possible that most people would be familiar with. Like a bat only live, uh, is only active at night and a bat hangs upside down and a bat has wings, but not just wings, but like leathery wings and a bat uses echolocation. And so like, they're just very alien as far as it's just a very strange animal to us. And so, you know, Nagel, his famous quote is that there is something that it is like to be a bat. It's not that this is what a bat does. It's that there is something that it is like to be a bat. And we can't know what that like is. Just like you say, like, I can't, like, there is something that it is like to be Andrew Graziano. I can't know what that is. I can look at Andrew. I can study his behaviors. I can base some of his, some propositions based on other observations with other human beings and my own experience. There's something that it is like to be Andrew. 
that I can't access. And it's the same way with, uh, although, you know, with humans, we make a pretty, pretty quick leap because we're like, ah, humans, I know what it's like to be a human because uh, I'm a human and therefore my experience must be similar to another human's. And that is probably true. But like, th- there is something that it's like to be a bat. There's something that it's like to be a horse. There's something that's like to be a human. And scientific language cannot capture the qualitative nature of consciousness, like the, like the red of an apple. Like, like the bat sees the red of an apple very differently than we do. And scientific language can't capture that. It can't capture the subjective nature of consciousness, uh, which is to say like adopting the perspective of, of, individu- of an individual consciousness. Let me just let me say one thing about Nagel, though, real quick. Nagel is just such a great philosopher. He's literally everywhere in philosophy. And so I just have to give him some props. <laughs> like, I remember last, last year when I was doing a lot of Aristotle reading, I picked up this book, this very famous um, collection of essays on uh, Aristotle. Nagel's in there. Picked up a book on legal, legal philosophy. Nagel's in there. If you look at uh, <laughs> philosophy of mind, Nagel's in there. So pretty cool dude. And he's still alive, I believe. Yeah, he is. He's one of my favorite contemporary mm-hmm. philosophers. I really enjoy reading him. Great. All right. So that's about it on the Nagel thought experiment. But there's another, another one of my favorites too. Um, and this perfectly segues into it is Frank Jackson's black and white Mary argument, which sounds a little weird. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, this is one of my favorite thought experiments as well. Um, so here's here's the premise, right? Very similar, to like Plato's allegory of the cave, in a way. So you have this you have this girl her name's Mary, and <laughs> thus the title. So you have this girl her name's Mary, and she is for whatever reason in a room her entire life. And this room is only, or, or anything in the room is, is only black and white or various shades of gray. The furniture's black and white. She's black and white. The TV that she's looking is black and white. Everything is black and white and various shades of gray. She's never experienced color other than black and white. Mary is also highly intelligent. She has, you know, a university degree and uh, even in, say, like neurobiology. She's incredibly intelligent in the ways of science. And so throughout her life, as she's grown up, she has studied things in her black and white room. And so Mary has studied color. Mary knows what happens in the body or the brain when someone sees, say, like a red apple. She understands about wavelengths and the retina and the eye and cones and rods and how all of this gets translated in various regions of the brain to produce what she would call red, what anyone would call red, right? So she knows, she understands red from an objective, quantifiable, scientific way. But then one day she's released and in the front yard is an apple tree. And she walks out and upon leaving her room for the first time, sees a red apple, like the actual color red. And the idea here is that she has learned something new about the color red by experiencing, like having a subjective experience about the color red that is very different from the quantifiable scientific description of red. It's like what it's like to have a red experience. So that's black and white Mary. How does all that 
support or refute uh, anything with materialism. If we existed in the world as materialists think we do, I guess I'll say it like that, then the fact that Mary learns something new when she experiences color for the first time, that seems to mean that materialism is not true, right? Mary is really smart. She knows everything about the science behind you know, color perception. I think the idea is something like, how, how does she experience red for the first time, right? How is that the first time that you know, it's actually red. This is so weird to to think about, to to speak about, but I think it makes sense as a, a thought experiment. So um, basically, they argue that um, it's the experience that's giving Mary this knowledge. It's not kind of the doing a very bad job of explaining it, but it's not um, something that can just be kind of learned. It's the experience behind it. Um, and then, so the author of this thought experiment uses this to believe that. I guess materialism is, isn't false. It's not true. I don't know that it's necessarily that materialism is false, but maybe something along, more along the lines of like materialism gives an incomplete account mm. of knowledge, right? In that it only can give an objectivist quantifiable account of knowledge. Uh, it doesn't include subjective experience, yeah. right? Like there's something more to, although although this is a question, I'd be curious uh, what you think about it. Uh, like, so cool. Like you haven't experienced red. What does the experience of red add to the knowledge of of an apple versus just understanding quantifiably or objectively what red is? Like, what does the experience of red add to knowledge? Hmm. It's like an important question to ask because because panpsychists will say like th- this is really important right like because we're talking about essentialism yeah. right the essential uh, it has a little bit to do with the essential nature of of an apple but like but seriously like not seriously <laughs> but uh, but like what does like what does that really add to our knowledge of of an apple yeah I think it's a good question and I think it's it's going to be very at least in my view maybe maybe I was going to say it seems clear but m- maybe it doesn't. Um, it seems to me like experience is something that's important. I'm trying to think about something that I, I've only learned about, but um, but when I saw it for the first time, it was completely different. I don't know. I'm thinking of like, yeah, okay, this is a super dumb example, but maybe it'll it'll make sense to some people. So I remember the first time that I ever was going to fly on a plane, I was kind of not freaked out is not the right word, but in my my ears they're I don't, they're not messed up but they it's very difficult for me to pop my ears i don't know why mm. um so whenever i go swimming i have to be careful not to get a lot of water in my ears whatever blah 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 so i remember the first time that i was going to go on an airplane this is such a dumb example oh my gosh um i looked up like okay how do i pop my ears on an airplane um so i found all these links about mm-hmm. oh yeah you know you um you squeeze your nose and then you blow really hard or you um, chew gum or something. That's what I remember. And then, so I, <laughs> I bought a pack of gum before I went on the plane. I was preparing my, my nose for, for squeezing. So when, when I would go up in the air and my had to let the pressure out of my ears, I could do it. And then I remember like when I was up in the plane and I didn't need my ears to pop, none of those things worked. And so I was kind of freaking out. So I was like, I don't know. Uh, and then I just remember yawning, my ears popped, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so easy. 
And so this is a very crude, not crude, but it's a very dumb way of explaining how like you're experiencing something can, it just provides a lot more knowledge about something than simply just studying kind of the quantifiable aspects behind it. Yeah, no, I think I think it's actually a great example. Yeah, there's something that's important about experience, right? Uh, there's something important about looking at a, a red apple. There's something important about that experience. I don't know really what to say that is, but it adds to our understanding of what it is to experience an apple um, or to experience flight. Yeah, yeah, I think it's all good. So that's the arguments about materialism and a couple of uh, problems that might arise from it. Uh, Here in a minute, we'll take a look at panpsychism, but now it is time to acknowledge this episode's sponsors. That's the sound of money. Fresh printed money, 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 money. You know, Andrew, I like hats. (laughs) When when I think of like uh, I need to put something on my head, my my go to is a hat. So hats hats can be a, like make a real statement, right? So you know you go to these conferences and I show up and I'm wearing like some boring khaki dockers and a Coles button up shirt and I just look like everyone else. But I'm like, no man, I got to make a statement. I need to I need to bring some swagger into this. I think I need a I need a hat that really makes a statement. And ladies and gentlemen, that's where Mary Midgley's haberdashery can step in for you. That's right. Mary Midgley's haberdashery, the great <laughs> philosopher from the late 20th, 21st century, she always had such an amazing hat. And Mary Midgley's haberdashery deals in such things. So when you need to make a splash at a conference, uh, a hat is a great way to do that. Let's see. Mary Midgley's haberdashery is located in West London, but they ship internationally. So <laughs> check them out. Mary Midgley's haberdashery. Uh, thank you for sponsoring us this week. Money, 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 money. And we'd also like to give a special thanks to this week's other sponsor, Francis Bacon's Deli. They provide the finest philosophical meats and cheeses from around the world, wherever you are. Oh, yeah. I hear that they really specialize in BLTs. Like their BLTs huh. are... Mm, to die for. And if you use our special promo code at checkout, Open Door Philosophy, you can get 20% off of any meats and cheeses. Thank you again. Bacon's Deli provides the finest meats and cheeses in all of England. Yeah, they they ship sandwiches internationally. So if you're really looking for a BLT, uh, it might be cold by the time it gets there. But let me tell you, quality and 20% off. And we, we'd also ask that you, our wonderful listeners, sponsor us by quickly rating our podcast and perhaps even leaving a review. This is how you can sponsor us. It makes the techno lords sitting on their thrones behind computer screens happy. It's all about the algorithms, people. Anyway, it causes Open Door Philosophy to pop up more frequently in search results and recommendations to other listeners. And so that would be great. And of course, nothing's better than word of mouth. So always think about passing on open door philosophy to people you know. Yeah, please leave us a good rating if you are liking the podcast. And even if, gosh darn it, I was going to say, even if you don't, leave us a five star. (laughs) Even if you don't, please. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, please leave us a five star rating. And I know Francis Bacon's Deli will be willing to ship you a extra BLT if you do that. So Another another reason to do so. And also, 
Um, we're planning on a future episode based on listener questions, and that's very exciting. So that's right. So here in the next month, folks, actually, yeah, it'll probably air about a month from from when you're listening to this episode. Uh, send us your nagging philosophical questions. Like, you know, is everything meaningless <laughs> to us at opendoorphilosophy at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter or Instagram and send us your questions. We're going to have a good time uh, answering your questions. We've received a few already. So send them in. Okay, now we're heading into the second half of our show. So we're going to spend some time talking about the philosophical position on consciousness that is known as panpsychism. Andrew's a big fan. Um, (laughs) So, so this is a, uh, this is a very old theory that is being taken seriously again in academic circles. Uh, the, The materialist in the crowd might say it's not being taken seriously in academic circles, but it's making too much noise right now to be ignored. And uh, there has recently been some books published on it. Philip Goff is one with his book, Galileo's Error, and he's a big advocate for panpsychism. So you can't really dismiss it or rather ignore it. So here we go. This is what panpsychism is. So, So panpsychism posits that consciousness is a fundamental feature of physical reality. And at surface, you'd probably be like, yeah, that checks. But then uh, it, it goes a little further. Ultimately, what panpsychism is, is, is an argument about intrinsic nature. So we're going to unpack this. So why panpsychism? Like, why has it come up recently? And, and here's the, the idea behind it, or why. The main attraction of it is its ability to account for the reality of consciousness according to the laws of nature, which is what a materialist would prefer, of course, while avoiding a completely materialist explanation that doesn't make room for the subjective nature of experience, like we talked about with what it's like to be a bat and black and white Mary. So we know that consciousness is real, so we have to have an account for it that makes sense. Materialism is incomplete. Dualism is incomplete. So here is panpsychism to bridge the gap. And the gap is we ascribe consciousness or a degree of consciousness to almost all things. So all things is a big word. Um, so Andrew, immediately when I say that, what's your questions? Like, I don't know, you can talk about rocks or whatever. Yeah, no, I think I think rocks, no, rocks is exactly the thing that I'm thinking about. I'm like, how is someone going to argue that a rock has consciousness? That's That's the first thing that comes to mind. Say, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, you you start thinking about Pixar or whatever, you know, like what does my does my teddy bear have consciousness or something? Is that what this means? <laughs> um, right. So a panpsychist would be very quick to to bring up some misconceptions about it. I think the panpsychist would come at me and uh, argue that uh, you know, Andrew, you're you're kind of having the misconceived idea about uh, my position. So I think the first thing that they would say is that they're not going to argue all things have the same degree of consciousness that maybe a human being has, or maybe even like a dog or cat has. They think that there's a a degree of consciousness in all things. They're going to argue that, uh, you know, a rock 
might have a degree of consciousness, but that degree is incredibly small. Another, and this kind of relates to that, to be honest with you, but they're also going to believe that um, this rock is not having some kind of, I have this rock on my desk, people can't see it, but they're not going to be saying this rock right here has this rich, inner subjective, conscious life. So you you wrote down a really, oh, <laughs> that's funny. I thought I on our show notes, I thought um, Mr. Parsons wrote down, uh, for instance, your rock has a favorite pair of shoes <laughs> um, or something. But I think it would be, you know, when he said a rock or your favorite pair of shoes. But yeah, I think I think it's it still holds an example. A rock's not going to have a favorite pair of shoes, probably. Uh, do you want to add anything to that point? Sure. Yeah. It's it's that panpsychists will say that really what they're talking about is what they would identify as the fundamental constituents of the physical world are conscious, not necessarily how those fundamental constituents come together in an arrangement to create a rock. Like we're going to talk about. Uh, electrons here in, in a little bit so so they ascribe consciousness to an electron but how those electrons which are part of atoms come together and create a rock that doesn't result in consciousness there's a bit of a scientific problem there and it's always a great question of like well how on earth do all the atoms come together specifically to make me the human being uh, versus like it makes a rock like how does that happen that's a big question and panpsychism or at least what we're presenting today will not address that that yeah, like rocks don't have consciousness. Your your plastic water bottle doesn't have consciousness, but rather that the fundamental constituents of the physical world are conscious, and that's certainly a degree of consciousness. Like it is not a level of consciousness that we would call probably meaningful. Yeah, they they, they don't believe that consciousness, like human consciousness, is everywhere. Our consciousness is incredibly complex. So when they say all things have consciousness, they don't really mean all things. And when they do say all things have consciousness, the type of consciousness they're talking about, especially very small things like an electron, would be almost unimaginably simple. But that that's kind of some misconceptions, I think, that that a panpsychist would identify. Yeah, and I have this I have this quote down in my in my notes um, about panpsychism. Um, that I think really explain this point kind of well, because I think it is very, um, very weird thing to think about. So uh, it says, so whilst the panpsychist holds that men- mentality is distributed throughout the natural world in the sense that all material objects have parts with mental properties, she needn't hold that literally everything has a mind. E.g., she doesn't hold that a rock has mental properties, just that the rock's fundamental parts do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there you go. It's perfect. Let's go back to materialism and why panpsychists feel like this is a good addition to, or rather fulfills or completes a materialist argument, right? So the basic argument here is that physics and science is a wonderful tool for prediction, right? So science tells us a lot about how our universe works. A lot of how our universe works is based on formulas, laws, axioms, theorems, all those kinds of things. Uh, and because of those, we can make physical sense of our universe. Physics tells us how things work, right? Physics tells us 
what those things will do. And so, you know, I read last week that there's some asteroid that's hurtling towards Earth and it's going to come, quote unquote, close to us, which is, of course, like millions of miles away. But using the mathematics and understanding how laws of nature work in outer space, then we can predict where like the trajectory of that asteroid is is going to go. And we don't have to worry about it hitting Earth because we know. So physics is a very good tool of prediction. And you can apply the same thing to like human bodies. You know, we've all been through COVID. We've, uh, we've, there's been lots of science done on like why that's occurred and how it's occurred and what its impacts are on the body. And we understand all those things and we can predict that certain percentage of people will have to be hospitalized and all these types of things. So great. So physics can tell us how things work and they can tell us what those things do, but physics cannot tell us what things are. So let that sink in. Physics tells us how things work and what they will do, but they can't tell us what things are. And so let's back up. And when I said earlier, this is an essentialist argument. The idea is that there's something essential to things in the universe that is more than just what they do. Yep. This is a huge, huge, huge philosophy um, concept in metaphysics and philosophy. Just in it, essential properties are a big deal, especially... Yeah, really in any type of any type of philosophy, even in ethics, right? Even in ethics, which seems so so drastically different than something like metaphysics, but the idea is that an essential property, you know, I think that this 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 will loop around so it won't make sense at first, but I think we use we use words not in their intended meaning a lot of the time, and I think essential is one of those. We say, um, it's like essential that I have my wallet. Or it's essentially the case. But really, in metaphysics, something that's an essential property, essential quality, something that's essential to something is a property that exists inside of an object. An object in metaphysics is just anything. That property cannot be removed without the object fundamentally changing. So... That's right. So let, let me, I, I forget if I've used this example on this podcast before, but take like a, an ice cube, for example. An essential property of an ice cube is coldness. If you remove the essential quality from an ice cube, the coldness, it's not an ice cube anymore. It's fundamentally changed. If you remove an essential quality from a thing, that thing cannot exist in the same way. Right. So like you could remove a molecule of water from an ice cube. But it would still be an ice cube. Yep, 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 yep. Right? So, but if you remove coldness, well, then all of a sudden you have vapor or water. Yep, exactly. And it's no longer an ice cube. Exactly. Yeah. And we make the same arguments in philosophy when you're talking about identity, which we may have, oh, I bet we've done that last season. But so, you know, like, let's take me, for example, when it comes to identity, I am a teacher. I'm a philosophy teacher, specifically. I, uh, I administrate a program at my school. I am a husband. I am a dad. I am a grandpa, which is kind of a weird idea, but I love it. Um, it is, <laughs> you know, and so these are the things that I do. And oftentimes we associate like the things that we do or the things that we prefer. Like, let's say I like this particular band or whatever, like that's part of my identity. Is there something more to me than just the things I do? 
is there something more to me than just being a teacher, being a husband, those types of things? Is there something essential to me that is outside of that? And so you apply that same thing to this idea of panpsychism. And, you know, you talk about essential qualities. And for panpsychism, that essential quality is consciousness. So if you took away consciousness, right, then that thing would no longer be that thing. Let's take like the smallest thing that panpsychists point towards is having consciousness uh, and, and talk about that as an example. And that's an electron. So using everything we've just talked about, physics can tell us what things are that are a part of an electron. Like electrons have mass, electrons have a negative charge, and it can tell us like what an electron does. Like it generates an electric field, it exerts uh, attractive force, there's angular momentum, it spins. And that's all great. That's what it does. And we can identify it by those traits. But physics doesn't tell us what an electron is, which sounds silly. (laughs) What is an electron? Uh, But it is really interesting to kind of think about. It's like, oh, this is what it does. They're like, but but what is it? You know, it's an electron. Well, cool. But like, what is that? And you're like, well, it's something that spins and has negative charge. Like, no, 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 no. That's like what it does. Like, what is it? That's a wild question. But, but, but the point here is that there must be an intrinsic nature to an electron independent of what it does in relation to other particles. Just like with the human example, right? There must be something, an intrinsic nature to me that is independent of what I do in relation to other human beings. So this is, this is how the, the argument works. The argument is physics tells us nothing about the intrinsic nature of matter. It just tells us what matter does. And so I guess the therefore is, um, not that I've set up a syllogism, but uh, the, the therefore is we have a hole in our understanding of what consciousness is. We, we think it's like maybe this separate thing that we should be able to study, uh, but we can't study it. And so, so the panpsychist is like, There's nothing to study. Like consciousness is experience. Consciousness is experience. It's ubiquitous. Um, And everything has it. So that's panpsychism. All things have, not all things. And if we were to really like dive into this, man, we'd start talking about animals and we'd start talk about plants and those types of things. But I don't know. What, What do you, what do you think about that theory, Andrew? Like, what are its strengths and weaknesses? I think it does take kind of a middle middle approach in materialism and dualism, which I think is appealing to some extent. And I think that, I don't know, it's something that I was just thinking about while we were talking is it's it's basing our understanding of consciousness on a different level, I think, than maybe a dualist would agree with, or even a materialist would agree with a common idea of what consciousness might be. So I think you know, there might be some merit to it in that way, right? Like if we're, if we're redefining what consciousness is, as something of experience. Um, I, I, I think it makes a little bit more sense in that way. And I, I really, I really do in, appreciate the uh, essential quality aspect. And I, I do think that's important. And 
I was listening to another podcast called Damn the Absolute, and it has a philosopher on there who is a philosopher of mind. And uh, the host asked the philosopher about panpsychism, what they thought of it. And the philosopher's conclusion was, I can't say I really agree with it, but also I don't have anything with which to completely dismiss it with. And therefore, it, you know, it kind of remains a part of the conversation. Um, I, I think it does some very handy things for the arguments, right? Like it does, like I said, I appreciate the essentialist argument as well. And, you know, maybe, you know, is, is the essential nature of matter that it's, that it's conscious? Well, you know, it's our essential nature. Does that go all the way down to an electron? You know, I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there, I don't know. I don't know. There, there's, there seems, there seems to be something there, but it also seems a little sketchy to me. But I also don't know much about this topic, so I'm going to do some more studying and and figure this out. Feel, figure out what my position on this is. <laughs> yeah, three three stars. Yeah, <laughs> give it three stars. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. Well, uh, there you go, everyone. Uh, that is like the three major views on consciousness, dualism, materialism, panpsychism. One of those might resonate with you more than another, but you know, in all of this, which I guess leads us into next week's, a preview for next week's episode, we're going to get even more information about this. We're very excited next week to have the editor and contributor uh, of a new book that's coming out on February 15th in the United States. That's a, a book called Philosophers on Consciousness, Talking About the Mind. Uh, and that person is Jack Symes uh, and also the co-host of the Pan Psychast. And so he will uh, no doubt bring a, a level of understanding of consciousness that, uh, that Andrew and I don't have. And we're looking forward to that conversation with him and hearing about the book. Many of the philosophers that we have mentioned in the last two episodes are a part of that book and have contributed to that book. So uh, look forward to that episode, which is which will be the next one. Um, but uh, I think that's our take on consciousness. So that means it's time to head on over this week to the Quote Corner. It's back, ladies and gentlemen. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Quote Corner. So excited to be back after a... Oh, hey, Andrew. You've really done some great things to this corner. It looks fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I've done a little bit of decorating while we've been gone. You know, I've been studying beauty and aesthetics, and I got to say, the quote corner looks really good. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> I'm excited to be back and uh, uh, upgraded the space a little bit. So um, super happy to be here. And I'm super happy as well to introduce this quote that I actually heard in one of my classes from one of my professors. We were talking about, and I just knew, I just knew at that moment I had to bring it onto the podcast. So we are talking about everybody's favorite um, ethical system, which has actually grown on me in the past few weeks. Um, we were talking about utilitarianism. We were reading this piece by this philosopher named Bernard Williams, who's a very famous philosopher from the 20th century, I believe. Basically, he wrote this piece called, let me pull it up. Yeah, so I very easy name to forget. It's called a critique of utilitarianism. Oh wow, yeah. it's inspiring. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Bernard Williams in that basically argues that utilitarianism is traditionally conceived um, can be quite alienating to uh, individuals, 
we, we if you're having a, a blank moment like I was on what utilitarianism is, utilitarianism is, you can check out our episode on it from last season. But anyway, talking about utilitarianism, Williams gives this example of a, a husband who's in a lifeboat and he can either save his wife or a random person and uh, imagine that this person is a utilitarian. So in this situation, um, the utilitarian runs through this calculus in his head whether to save his wife or a random person. Um, Williams argues that the fact that you have to go through a calculation to decide who to save, even if you do end up saving your wife, is quite alienating. So the quote from my professor when recapping this was, you don't need utilitarianism's permission to save your wife. Um, <laughs> that's from George Scher, pretty cool guy. Professor at Rice University. Yes. All right. <laughs> you don't need utilitarian's permission to save your wife. Boy, amen to that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, with the, with the famous trolley problem uh, that you love so much, you know, one of the questions is like, well, who are these people tied to the track? Uh, and, and if that makes a difference and like, you know, what if it's your child or what if it's your spouse? And yeah, you know, uh, the calculus of utilitarianism can be harsh, um, but I like that. You you, you don't need the calculus uh, in order to figure out that you should save your wife. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> like, and, you know, it's just, it, you know, even if you do end up saving your wife because you're like, oh, my wife's going to bring so much more happiness to me, whatever, blah, 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 blah. Like that's still even having to run through that calculation is kind of uh, imagine yourself in the place of the wife. Like that would be quite frustrating, um, you know, <laughs> just, say the just least. a little bit. Uh, I mean, if she wasn't going to die, I would say the marriage is over. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I think, you know. <laughs> yeah, you can't be like, but honey, the calculus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's just. You know, it's it's uh, utilitarianism, especially, and I, I'm going to say this here because there's different types of utilitarianism, just types that we didn't talk about that can avoid this problem, blah, 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 blah. But still, utilitarianism is traditionally conceived as alienating. This uh, this quote is, is showing how it can be alienating. And uh, Mr. Parsons, first time back in a while, what are you going to rate it? Oh, I don't need a calculus to figure this one out either. Uh, this is five stars. This is a really funny quote. <laughs> yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it five stars as well. As, as soon as I heard this quote, texted Mr. Parsons and was like, oh my gosh, this is so funny. Uh, you're going to have to tell your professor that like we just unquestionably gave this five stars. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he'll be very impressed. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sure he will. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that was a great uh, return to the quote corner. Great return. <laughs> I, I can tell by your demeanor uh, that you've, even though you said you've warmed up a little bit to utilitarianism, you're still quite dismissive <laughs> of it. Yeah, and that, and that's. I, I like the blah 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 blah. <laughs> that's the funny part too, because I, I don't know, like I don't even. We can talk about uh, it later, I guess, on another episode. But um, there's this one called rule utilitarianism, and I, I'm kind of warming up to it. But just utilitarianism yeah. in general is kind of. Uh, Still kind of just something fishy about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rural utilitarianism helps, but I think we're on the same same page on that one. 
All right, everybody, that's going to be about it for today's episode on the second episode of the season of the second part of the mind body problem. Uh, good thing we're not into numerology. Okay, we thank you so much for listening, guys. And like I said earlier, pass it along to your friends, please. Uh, no doubt they would love to listen. You can find more about the show episode resources at our website at opendoorphilosophy.com. We promise it won't be alienating. And hey, man, like you should head over to our new merch store. We've got some really great items in there. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We're on a merch store. Uh, so please, in the absence of a merch store, uh, please engage with us online. My philosophy, Twitter is D underscore Parsonage. And we have uh, also an open door philosophy Instagram. And once again, my favorite composer in the world. I'd like to thank Kevin McLeod for the free use of his music. Please go check him out online. Really funky, really groovy, really like it. It's the moral thing to do. So remember, we'll see you next time. And when your life is in need of some philosophy, the door is always open.